All right, tonight we return back to our discussion on the distinction or the proper distinction between law and gospel. I think everyone makes some kind of a distinction. The question is, is it a proper distinction? And that's what we are going to continue to work on. We uh, A couple of things, let's see if what you remember. Um, we started off by looking or considering the idea of key doctrines or very important doctrines. And for the sake of this study, we said that there are two very, 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 very important doctrines, very key doctrines. Obviously, the first one is justification, and the second one is the proper distinction between law and gospel. How important that is? Well, um, if we go with the thesis that we've been looking at, that basically the claim is you can't understand the, you can't understand the entire Bible without this proper distinction. So we talked about the importance of it. What are some other things we discussed, kind of in our introduction? Whatever you may have in your notes that you that you remember. What are some other things that we talked about? At the beginning of this series, trying to introduce it and try to give everyone an idea of what we're doing. What do you have? Okay, I'm glad everyone remembers. <laughs> okay, what? Okay, well, okay, well, we defined law and gospel, right? Okay, how did we define law? Do this and live, or do this and be saved. Okay, that's very, very important to make sure we understand that. And gospel? Christ has done this so you can be saved, or Christ has done this in order to save you. There's lots of different ways we can word it. Making sure we have that kind of a proper definition. We gave far more to that in our definitions, but that kind of summarized it, all right? Um, and then we, we talked about what Luther said in regards to the person who is well-versed in the art of dividing the law. What did Luther say about that kind of person? Uh, we, talk, we talked a quote by Luther who said the person who is well-versed in the art of dividing, of dividing the law from gospel, well, he should be placed at the head of all and call him a doctor of holy scripture or holy writ. Remember we talked about that? Everybody remember that? Yes? Now, what are the theses we, we talked about being an orthodox teacher? But this is the, the, the quote from Luther. Right, So if you don't have that, just remember, the person who is well-versed in the art of dividing the law from the gospel should be placed at the head of all and call them a doctor of holy writ. According to Luther, it doesn't matter. You may, be, you may have all the other doctrines down. You may have hermeneutics down. You may have all of these other things down. But if you cannot draw a proper distinction between law and gospel, Luther would say you shouldn't be at the table, much less the head of the table. Okay, so very important, and that fits perfectly with the thesis that we've looked at, because there's one specific thesis, well, there's a number of them that would, would go with this, all right? Okay, everybody remember that? Yes, okay. Anything else as far as our introduction that we think that we need to remember, that we need to understand? Okay, I have tried to emphasize this. And I will continue to try to emphasize this, that I feel in some ways this is one of the most important series that we have done. Uh, now, I have not been able to do any extra work on the series this week, so nobody is behind. Uh, but I will, hopefully starting tomorrow, that I'm going to be uh, doing some analysis and reviews of some other podcasts in regards to this subject and some other discussions and maybe giving uh, different assignments and homework because we definitely need to try to understand this once and for all and see how it greatly impacts 
not only our understanding of all the Bible, but especially how it understands our theology and especially how it impacts our understanding of salvation, all right? Because when you start talking about law and gospel, you're talking about something that directly impacts the doctrine of salvation. Can we all agree on that? Yes, I think, I think we can all, uh, I think that is very important. All right, so what we started to do, all right, what we started to do is we started to look at these, the- from the book, God's No and God's Yes, all right, we started looking at the thesis in this book. How many theses does the book provide? 25. How many have we looked at so far? Or not, not looked at so far. How many have we listed because we haven't started working on them yet? We're just going through trying to have them all written down. 11, okay? Now, I don't have time to review all of them. I want to, all right? Out of the 11 you have written down, I know you probably haven't reviewed them this week, but if you, if you can just look at them briefly, which one of the first nine, because 10 created all kinds of problems, out of the first nine, for those currently in this room, and if anyone's listening online, I will check uh, the Spreaker app to see if anyone has their, their one, their list. But which ones jump out or that you felt was the most significant or the most confusing or the most powerful or the more, more like, oh, I've never thought of this. Out of the nine, which one jumped out at you? And again, I'm, I'm not, I know that nobody probably reviewed them, but just whatever you may have seen or while you're taking a look at what you have in front of you. And let me pull up the speaker app. Okay, Stacy said which one? Six. Six, okay, and is there a reason why? Okay. Okay. Everybody see number six? All right. That the word of God is not rightly divided when the law is not preached in the full sternness and the gospel not its full sweetness. Uh, when, on the contrary, gospel elements are mingled with the law and law elements with the gospel. You've got to preach each one fully, accurately, and you're not too mingle them. And I think that's very important, all right? Anybody else have one that jumped out at them was important to them? Number four, all right? The true knowledge of the distinction between the law and the gospel is not only a glorious light, affording the correct understanding of the entire Holy Scriptures, but without this knowledge, the Scriptures is and remains a sealed book. Any reason why that one jumped out to you? Okay, right. All right. So you would, have, you would acknowledge your lack of maybe understanding this proper distinction, but you would have felt like you understood the scriptures. Right. I mean, that's, that's a major claim right there. Um, some, some people um, online uh, this week pointed out that they thought number one was one of the most important. Uh, the doctrinal contents of the entire Holy Scripture, both of the Old and New Testament, are made up of two doctrines differing fundamentally from each other, the law and gospel. That means, look... The whole Bible, the, the, the whole key to understanding the entire Bible really hinges on this proper distinction, right? So, I mean, that's a massive claim right there. 
So it's very, 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 very significant. So number one, all right? So there, I think all of these, is, is there one? I, I can see, I, I, I think Sarah kind of already answered this, number four, because you never would have thought it that way. Is there any certain one that you're like, wait, I have never thought that way, never considered that, never, just like completely like, wait a minute, what's going on here? I think we can all agree that probably most people, most people who've been going to church for a very long time would not be familiar with any of these theses. Can we say that that's probably an accurate statement? I, I, I think it's an accurate statement. All right. Did you have something? Okay. All right. We got to number 10. Now, I want to go back and read all nine, and, 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 but we don't have time. We got to number 10. Kudo number 10. Oh, boy. All right. This is number 10. Now, I have to make some decisions here. All right? Because on one hand, all I wanted to accomplish is really get these all listed and just throw a couple of thoughts out, really just trying to introduce this. But when we get to number 10, we had some problems with number 10. Right? Not only do we have problems, we tried to rewrite it. I kind of, I I rewrote it a little bit, but I kind of left off the first part and kind of just rewrote the second part a little bit. Uh, I hope some of you have written down what we came up with as my rewrite. I hope someone has it written down. You erased it? Well, how come? Oh, right, right. We have, we have the original here, but our, my rewrite, did you write, write down my rewrite that we, I gave everyone? Oh, for the second part. Right, we didn't rewrite the first part. We, okay, okay. All right, I just want to make sure. Just want to make sure. Okay. So we decided to, re- I, well, we, we, we've been rewriting all of them to some level, but we completely rewrote number 10. And uh, some, uh, someone uh, sent me a complete rewrite that I think is, is very good, and we're going to talk about it. But my, my, my struggle tonight is this. Do we spend some real significant time working on number 10? Because it really brings up a whole issue that probably no one here has ever thought about. So we may, I may make the decision to do a little bit of work on this. I could just save it until we get through all listing all of them and then come back, but I just think this may be the proper time. So we'll see. I I may make the wrong decision here, but we will see. Because I think this is one that I could talk about it now, and then when we get back to number 10, talk about it again, and I still would not be sufficient because this raises some serious issues, all right? So, everybody ready? Let's read number 10, all right? As it was written. Here we go. Thesis number 10. The Word of God is not rightly divided. Now, remember, that's, the, that's kind of becoming the key phrase in these theses, right? The Word of God is not rightly divided. And in every situation, the Word of God is not rightly divided, and it has something to do with this distinction between law and gospel. So, let's do this. Let's see who can find it first. Find me the scripture that talks about rightly dividing the word of truth. Because clearly, they're taking this language from that scripture. So where is that scripture? Who can find it first? All right, Stacy thought she knew where it was. Who can find it first? can find it first. You can, I don't care how you find it. 
All right, 2 Timothy 2.15, I have it right here. 2 Timothy 2.15, everybody there? Let's go to verse 14 for context, 2 Timothy 2.14. Of these things, put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, a lot of times that's applied directly only to preachers. Okay, it's funny that it's only applied to preachers, yet the people sitting in the pew will tell the preacher that they're wrong. So I don't know. (laughs) You know, if you're going to tell the preacher that is wrong, then you've got to be the one studying as much or more than the preacher. But it's funny that you don't have to study as much as the preacher. You can still tell the preacher they're wrong. That's that's but that's a whole different uh, subject. But the key is rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, don't you wish there was uh, the next verse? would tell you exactly what that means? Because everyone thinks that their way of dividing the scriptures is the right way, right? You have covenant theology. Hey, we rightly divide the word of truth. You have dispensationalists. No, we rightly divide the word of truth. You have the proper distinction between law and gospel. They think they rightly divide. Everyone thinks that their way is the right way, which is maddening and frustrating. But that's the phrase, that's where they took the phrase from writing these theses. And their argument is this. The right way to divide Scripture equals what? A proper distinction between law and gospel. And what is a wrong way of dividing Scripture? A wrong or a failure to properly draw a distinction between law and gospel. That's the claim that they are making. It's a very important claim, and it's one that we are going to continue to work on and see. All right, so go back to thesis number 10. Here we go. The Word of God is not rightly divided. When the preacher... All right, now this comes down to now what's happening behind the pulpit. Describes... Stop with the next word. Faith. Let's stop right here. Now, when I started trying to come up with a rewrite, you'll notice I just skipped that first part, and I just rewrote the second part, okay? And there was a reason. One, I didn't know exactly what way I wanted to rewrite the first part. I wasn't completely sure. But I almost immediately realized, uh uh-oh, this is going to bring in an entire subject that's going to be majorly problematic. Now, I, uh, other people online who were listening, they kind of caught on to the issue of faith. And they started, then their rewrites, they kind of went with this direction and they started raising the question of, well, what do we mean by faith? Now, let me explain why this is important. What do we claim as non-Catholics, when it comes to salvation. What do we believe as non-Catholics when it comes to salvation? Say by faith. Thank you. That's what I was looking for, right? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. Everybody look at it. And it says, 
Okay, everybody look at it so that we don't. We, we, for by grace we are saved through faith. That not of yourself or not of works, lest any man should boast. Okay, through faith. That sounds so wonderful, right? You can get 20 Christians together and say, how, 20 non-Catholics and say, how are we saved? Grace alone. Faith alone. Christ alone. For God's glory alone, right? Okay, remember, we, we, we know this. We, everybody knows this, right? You can talk to all your Christian friends. And it sounds good. And as long as everyone will stop talking right there and go ahead and get to the potluck and stop shoving food down your throat, everyone will, be, get, everyone will get along. But if everyone says, okay, we, I think everyone can do a, probably a pretty good idea of defining grace, right? Right? We're going to come up with some basic idea of grace, right? Getting something we don't deserve, right? Okay, we're good with that. But faith, Clearly, if we're going to say that we're saved by grace through faith, then it comes down to what do we mean by faith? Do you think there is agreement on this? What what happens with the subject of faith in regards to salvation? What happens to this subject? Do, I mean, just tell me if I, ever, I hope everyone's with me tonight. I hope everyone's, everyone's here, okay, because this is important, all right? Do we not call into question the validity of people's faith? All the time! Right? Well, that person claims to believe, but I don't think they really believe. And typically, what do we use to judge the validity of someone's faith? Their obedience to law. So we typically use law as the basis of judging the credibility of one's faith. Now, if you do that, what would you have to include in your definition of faith? That faith involves obedience. You don't truly believe unless you obey. Correct? No, I'm saying if you, if you make the claim that someone faith is determined by their obedience to the law, then your definition of faith would have to include that faith involves obedience. I'm just, I'm saying, if you're saying that, right. I'm saying if you make the claim, hey, look, we don't know if Sarah is saved because whatever, whatever the issue we make, then by definition, our definition of faith would say faith involves obedience. Now, is that a correct definition of faith? Some say no. How many, how many do you think would say yes?
<laughs> I mean, come on. What, I bet you in your own life you've defined it that way, even if you didn't want to define it that way. Because I guarantee you, we, everyone in this room and people are listening online, you have called someone's faith into question on the basis of their lack of obedience to the law. We've all done it. Or rules, right? But I'm, it's still law-based. So then our definition of faith, if you go that direction, would be faith is the obedience to the law. Which then would mean that you are saved by works, right? That's where you end up. Right, but if faith produces the works, then how does it work that way? If faith is producing it, is faith just in and of itself just produce the works? So then... How, how, like, we would have, there was, because then you become, what, what becomes the major problem here? If faith is the thing doing it, well, then shouldn't faith, faith be sufficient to produce perfect? Considering, especially from a reformed perspective, because we believe faith comes from whom? Faith is a gift. So if God gives us faith, then why can't that faith produce perfect works? Well, everybody knows it doesn't produce perfect works. So if it doesn't produce perfect works, then how can I judge the, the, the truthfulness of my faith by a faith that cannot produce perfect works? So then I've got I to gotta find imperfect works as proof of perfect faith. <laughs> that becomes majorly problematic. So how should we define faith? Just quickly, everyone grab a Bible dictionary and just look up the term faith and just find me a, a quick definition of what they say. I know everyone's going to say, Hebrews defines it, but that's, that one's a really hard one to, to use here, right? Let, let's see what we come up with. I, I don't want to spend too much time here, but we're, we have to talk about it. All right? Look at the Bible dictionary and just give me its simple definition of faith. Oh, did you just hear that? Okay, so according to it, according to the dictionary, faith involves the following. Number one, belief. You may want to write this down, everyone. Okay, Bible dictionary, that's Nelson's. Okay? They define faith as, number one, belief. Everybody see that? Everybody have the dictionary open if you do? Okay, so we have belief. Number two? I'm just going to separate them for, for argument's sake. Okay? All right. Belief. Confidence. Okay? Because they say either or, but but. Belief and confidence is, is I, don't, I, I see a distinction there. Do you? Stacy says no. How many believe belief and confidence is the exact same thing? I don't think they're synonymous. I mean, anybody. Anybody can say they agree or disagree. Confident attitude, okay? 
Okay, so y'all think belief and confident attitude are the same thing, okay? I'm still separating them. I'm not convinced of that. I don't know how that would be like, okay, hey, I, I mean, I believe in God. Sometimes I don't know if I have a confident attitude in certain things. I have doubt. Do you never have doubt? No, no one here ever has doubt? Okay, those listening online, I know they have doubt, okay? okay. So nobody in my church has doubt? Okay, all right. All right, well, the minute you have doubt, that's no longer a confident attitude, right? Isn't that doubt and confident attitude contradictory? Well, I know. Okay. No, I just, I'm, this is important. We have to get a correct definition of faith here. We have to. So I'm, tr- I'm trying to make sure. So we're, I'm going to put belief. I'm going to put confident attitude, or because if we don't want the word confidence. Next. Okay, well, we, are, we know that the belief and faith will be towards God, okay? Or the, fa- the belief and the confidence. And in commitment. Commitment. So it's a belief. There's a confident attitude and there is a commitment. A commitment to his will. Okay. A kind of obedience. All right. Now, okay, would y'all, would y'all agree with these? Now, you got to be careful. Now, just remember, okay, whenever you get ready to agree on one of these, you better, you better check yourself first, right? You got, because the minute you, you say, I, oh, that's the correct way, you got to make sure your life is demonstrated that, because if not, then your faith is not genuine. It's easy, it's easy to go, that's the correct way, then run around and judge everyone's faith based off your definition, but never judge yourself. Right. Yeah, I'm not saying it is or isn't. I'm just saying that if you say that it's correct, you gotta, you gotta think it through. Let me, uh, someone sent me a, 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 a screenshot of a book. Listen to this. Everybody ready? All right. Here we go. Furthermore, the classical evangelical definition of saving faith encompasses three elements. Everybody ready? Knowledge and intellectual grasp of the facts. Assent the conclusion that these facts are true, and three, trust the conviction that these true facts are true in my case for my salvation. They say that's the classical evangelical definition of saving faith. What are the three? Knowledge, assent, and trust. What do they leave out? Obedience, commitment. Now, this one still would have questions, right? How much knowledge does one must possess, right? What's the uh, uh, correct, like what things must you have to have knowledge of? That's a never-ending debate, right? 
Do you have to understand the hypostatic union? Do you have to understand the deity of Christ? Do you have to understand the, the Trinity? Those raises serious questions. Do you have to understand the incarnation? Do you have to understand the virgin birth? I mean, do you have to understand the bodily resurrection? What do you have to understand? And everyone believes there's a certain things you have to understand, but no one can agree exactly which things you have to have. Everyone will say, well, a lot of people will say this, and it always it blows my mind. Well, no, no, you don't have to believe it to be saved. But the minute you reject it, then you're not saved, which is just mind-boggling to me, okay? Like, I don't know how exactly that works, but okay. So everybody got those three? What are they? Knowledge, assent, and trust, all right? Now, let's go with, uh, they go on to say in the book this. John MacArthur argues that the elements of saving faith are, are you ready? What do you think MacArthur's going to say? Knowledge. Assent. What do you think the next one is? Determination of the will to obey truth. Faith is not complete unless it is obedient. That's lordship salvation, absolutely. Of the will to obey truth. Faith is not complete unless it is obedient. Yeah. To obey truth. All right, now, the first one, the, the, now, you've got the dictionary one. The dictionary one, and a little bit, kind of leans which way? To MacArthur's way, all right? The, the book offers what they call the classical definition, which only involves what three things again? Knowledge, assent, and trust. The conviction that these true facts are true in my case and for my salvation. You're like, I, okay, like, here are the facts. I know the facts are true. Now I am trusting in these facts for my salvation. Well, we, we may say it works, but we have to think this through now. If we go with that definite, not the, the, the dictionary definition, because that's basically a rewording of MacArthur's, or MacArthur's is a rewording of it, whichever came first, we, we can set that aside. If we go with the classical evangelical definition, we go with the classical evangelical definition, how could you call it, what what would be required to call into question someone's faith? What could you not use to call into question their faith? Couldn't use works, right? You You couldn't use works to call into question someone's faith because all you're looking for is what? Knowledge, assent, and trust. The second one, the MacArthur one, what would you use to call into question someone's faith? Their, their obedience. Now, the minute you bring in obedience to determine if someone's faith is legitimate, where do you end up? You clearly end up never knowing if anyone is saved because how much obedience is required to prove if someone's saved? How much determination? How much actuality? It would be maddening, would it not? 
Now, you see why this comes into play with law and gospel? Why, why does this definition, of this uh, issue of defining faith, how does it play out in the, in the concept of drawing a proper distinction between law and gospel? No, nobody has any thoughts on how this would correlate with law and gospel? Yeah, how does the definition of faith correlate with law and gospel? What we've been talk, talking about. How, how, how does this work together? There we go. Okay, exactly. Okay, if the gospel is what Christ did for us, and I'm saved simply by my knowledge of it, my assent to it, and my trust in it, right? Then that makes my salvation based, purely based off what? Gospel. If I mix in that saving faith means my obedience to anything, then now I am saved. You can't say I'm saved by grace alone. You can't say that I'm saved by good news alone. Because my salvation is greatly determined by the amount of obedience supposedly faith produces. And if faith is producing the obedience... Well, then faith has to be more than just trusting, has to be more than just assent, has to be more than knowledge. There would, because what, I mean, you're saying that I'm dead in my trespasses and sin, and the minute that I gain knowledge, assent, and trust in something, boom, that immediately overcomes my depravity and produces obedience? That would turn faith into something else, right? In fact, what would that almost sound like? What would that sound like? Yeah, that's, that would be that faith brings, that it infuses me with something. It infuses me now with obedience. Is, is, does that make sense? I feel like I've lost everyone completely tonight. All right? Is everyone still with me? <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. Okay, good. All right. So, now let's go back to number 10. Oh, there's more we could say there. We could, there's more we could say. But this is very important, understanding how we, how we define this. Let's do this really quick. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, by grace through faith, right? Everybody look up the Greek word for faith used in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Look up the Greek word for faith. We'll just add this to our discussion. It can't hurt tonight. May not help, but it can't hurt. Tell me when you find it. Okay, what is the Greek word? Okay. What does it mean? Or how's Strong's definition? Okay, so it seems to be the idea of, can, can we say that that would, in a roundabout way, do we find knowledge, assent, and trust in, in that? Yes or no? What do we think? Well, 
Okay. I mean, you can't, you can't trust in something you don't know. So knowledge is implied, at least, it's at least imp- the implication is there. And the assent would be, if I'm trusting in something, I've got to give some kind of assent that it's true, agreed. So would you say all three are, are found there? Okay. All right. What is the outline of biblical usage? Do they offer anything of, of insight? Conviction of the truth? Belief? All right, there's that, there's that, there's the knowledge, there's the assent, right? There's the trust. See, it's trust and confidence. It's not trust and confidence in the works it will produce. It's trust and confidence in someone or something other than myself, right? Right? Because look, if you, I want to make sure you understand, if you put obedience as a part of faith, then faith would have to be trust in the fact that that faith is going to produce the works that's going to basically save me. You say, well, no, 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 the works doesn't save you, the faith saves you. But if the faith doesn't produce the works, I'm not saved, so therefore I still have to have the works. This seems to be emphasizing it's what? The, the, oh, there you go. That's a good way of saying faith produces trust. Okay, if you want to say any, if it produces something. Okay. But that's the character. Your put your faithfulness and character in. It, it's the faithfulness and relying on God's character, His work, His trustworthiness. All right, I, I see where you were going. I see where you're going. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm having faith in Him, His character, His His obedience, which is perfect. That, that's everything that we've been saying that it is. Yeah, it's faith and trust. I, I think that I think the Greek word seems to seems to go in the direction of the classic definition, not the MacArthur definition. Would everyone agree with that? All right, we'll work on it more. I'm not hearing lots of certainty tonight, but I'm going to just trust that. I'm going to have faith that when we get to it, we can try to work this out. But does everyone understand the significance of what we're doing here? This is, we've got to figure this out. We have to figure this out. Isn't it amazing? I want you to just think about the, the implications of what we're saying tonight. Is it possible... That in the evangelical world, the non-Catholic world, the Protestant world, who protested Catholicism, condemns them to the 18th level of hell, right? Calls them the Antichrist. All the things Protestants love to say about Catholics. Would it not be the most insane thing to look back and realize that Christians, Protestants who condemn Catholics have literally obliterated the gospel by their very definition of faith. 
that our definition of faith is law-based and not gospel-based. That would be insane. That would mean the entire Protestant Reformation was a failure. Does, does, does anyone feel the gravity of that? The weight of what I just said? That, that's, that's like, that's serious. All right. Let's go back to thesis number 10. Okay, go ahead. No, 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 I understand. I understand. Okay. But, okay, well, let's go with the classic evangelical. They don't trust it for their own salvation. They acknowledge it. They assent to its truth. They're not trusting in it. That would be a distinction right there. We want to make the distinction. We we want to make the distinction in, in, in law in, in regards to obedience, but right. But I know. But again. But, but I mean, 2,000 years of church history shows me, do we really look that, di- did the people in first, did, did the people in church of Corinth look different than the people in Corinth? No, they didn't. Did Paul call their, their faith into question? He, he called them babes in Christ. Right? So, he didn't call their faith into question. Now, I know you're like, but James, I understand, and we have to look, we, we've worked on James already, and we've worked on 1 John, but I'm saying that at least with the demon idea, the distinction, we clearly, they don't have the trust part in. They're not trusting in it for their salvation, right? They're not. I mean, they, they clearly, there's a full-blown rejection of it and rebellion against it. All right, now back to number 10. Here we go. In, this, in the, uh, the Word of God is not rightly divided when the preacher describes faith in a manner as if the mere acceptance of truths, even while a person is living in mortal sin, renders that person righteous in the sight of God and saves him. Now, we reject the way this is written. I don't know exactly what he's trying to say. Once we get into their explanation of this, maybe we'll come back to it. We completely reject it. So we could say... All right, that the word of God is not rightly divided when the preacher describes faith in a manner that includes obedience, that faith is connected with obedience or that faith includes obedience to the law. Oh, yeah, because remember, there's two parts to this one. All right, so this we, we did not rewrite the first part, remember? Everybody Remember? So now we could rewrite the first part to say that the word of God is not rightly divided when the preacher describes faith in a manner which includes obedience to faith or obedience being a part of faith. Everybody understand? I'm kind of getting some looks like... No, no, because there's, remember, there's two parts to, to number 10. We rewrote the second part. Right now I'm rewriting the first part and then we'll include the second part. Does, it, does, it, does that make sense? Or did my second part already do this? Is that what you're trying to say? 
Okay, right. That, I think those are two separate things. If we, if the, when the preacher describes faith as a way that, it's a, that it involves obedience, in other words, faith is obeying the law, that is incorrect. And when the preacher describes faith as the thing that produces a change, that is incorrect. So we just have to put those two together. Now you can, you, can, you can clean it up a little bit. I'm just trying to give you the basic cons. You can clean it up and make it you know, flow a little better, but I want you to get the two main concepts. I'm focusing on the concepts here, not the accuracy of the, of the wording, okay? All right, so my first part is for number 10, that the word of God is not rightly divided when the preacher describes faith as involving or including obedience to the law. And, continuing, the word of God is not rightly divided when faith is described as the thing that produces righteousness. And those two would come together as number 10. Someone rewrote it this way. Someone rewrote it this way, and you can tell me if you may like theirs much better than mine. All right, you ready? It's long, but here we go. Did you drop something? Okay, here we go. Just listen before you start writing. The word of God is not rightly divided when when a preacher describes faith in a manner as if mere acceptance of truths, void of any level of introspection towards one's need for God's saving grace or one's depravity, renders that person righteous in the sight of God and saves him. While fruit is certainly produced, the exact nature remains a mystery, so therefore also the word of God is not rightly divided when the preacher describes faith as that which gives beyond acceptance and belief in the gospel and attempts to define a reformation for mode of living produced by said faith. Now let's take this one apart. Because this one tries to, I think, tries to go somewhat in the same direction I was going in certain levels. All right? So everybody with me? Everybody good? All right. Here we go. The first, this is how they describe the first part. When a preacher describes faith in a manner as if mere acceptance of truths, void of any level of introspection towards one's need for God's saving grace or one's depravity, renders that person righteous in the sight of God and saves him. They're focusing on, and they're kind of going with the verbiage that's written in the book, that the idea is you can just believe and these things are missing. And the things that they say would make this wrong is these things would be missing. Introspection towards one's need for God's saving grace or one's depravity, and that renders the person righteous in the sight of God. Yeah, the person, this, they were saying this would be wrong for someone to say, oh, you can just believe and you don't need it. You don't need to have any conviction. You don't have to have any acknowledgement of one's depravity. I, I agree that that, I, I, I think that that, there would be some truth to that. Now, the problem with this would become what? What would be would we, the possible problem with this? Thinking caps on. Thinking caps on. Go. 
It's the same problem over and over and over. I'm going to say the same thing like nine billion times. Whenever we say your faith is not legitimate, unless this or 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 this is there, what always becomes the problem? How much? How do we know it's sufficient? How do we know? So if you say, hey, faith Just the mere acceptance of truth, void of any introspection towards one's need for God's saving grace or one's depravity, renders the person righteous in the sight of God and saves him. I do agree with that, but but anyone should ask this question, how much introspection? How much guilt? How much do you have to feel? Is there any way to measure it? Right? Right? Or no, I'm, 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 getting kind of, I'm getting all these looks and, and I think nobody has a clue what I'm talking about tonight. Okay. Okay. So you're saying you would... Well... Right. Well, everyone would agree that they would have to have some guilt. The problem, all I'm saying is, once you say that, how much is required? Now, if you say that all that's required is for you to have enough guilt that it leads you to trust, but then do you need this? What you really need is the trust. Right? Does 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 that make any sense? Okay, okay. Okay, let's, let's stop going there. No, but I'm saying, okay, is that, I, I've got to figure out how to explain this because I feel like I'm lost everybody. All right. So let me, let me try this again. All right. Well, they're, rewrite, they're rewriting number 10, just like we've re- rewritten number 10. And they're saying that it would be, in, it would be not rightly dividing the word of truth if, if a preacher describes faith as simply believing or accepting truths, but they don't have any level of introspection towards one's need for God's saving grace or one's depravity. And that renders the person righteous in the sight of God and saves him. Say, say what? It's literally all over the evangelical world. It's, it's everywhere. That, yeah, that you come to Jesus not because of your sin. You come to Jesus because you're depressed. You come to Jesus because you have no friends. You come... Right, right. So, yeah, it's constantly... Right, they don't even mention sin. And they'll give an altar call. We've, we've sat in a church and seen altar calls given. And you're like, wait a minute, the gospel wasn't even preached. So yeah, that happens all the time. The, well, well, the problem here is, and I, all, I'm, all I'm trying to do is, trying to, what I'm trying to demonstrate to everyone is that we all take our understanding of faith for granted like we've all got it figured out. And as soon as we come to a thesis that brings up faith and everyone tries to rewrite it, immediately I'm getting all kinds of looks like, well, I, I, don't, I don't know what to do here because nobody here really has 
has, nobody really understands exactly what the right definition of faith is. Does, does faith, does true faith require an acknowledgement of one's sin, one's depravity, and one's need for grace? In other words, do you, must you experience that to possess true faith? Nobody wants to say yes and nobody wants to say no. Can I even get a maybe? Can I, okay, can I get a maybe? I'm, all of you have had some thoughts about this at some point in your Christian life. You, you all have had some thoughts because I guarantee you, you've called someone's salvation into question. I guarantee you, you, have call, you may have even called your own children's faith into question. And you've based it off something. This is, this is trying to remove it from looking at, hey, don't look at obedience, look at, hey, a person at least has to have some conviction. But the issue is now, how much conviction? That's hard. Now, I do agree with where, where Stacy was trying to take it because she was, I think what you were trying to do is say, well, wait a minute. Can you ever get to the, if we go with the classical definition of faith, which includes three elements, what were the three elements? Knowledge and trust. I can't get to the trust unless I perceive some need. I agree that that's, that's, a, that's a good way of bringing it together, but... It, to me, it's just easier to say faith that, you know, faith is just these three things. And wh- how one arrives there, I, you know what I'm saying? How one arrives there, I don't know. Do I have to say, here is what must you must experience before you arrive there? Does, does that make some sense? Let, let's go to the next part. All right, because I think everyone is completely lost. All right, I'm trying here. Well, let's see if we can we can we can try to bring this home and to something. All right, while fruit is certainly produced, the exact nature remains a mystery. Remember, I've said that a million times. The Bible does say the Holy Spirit is supposed to produce fruit, but I don't know exactly what that means or what that even looks like. I don't even know how you judge that, right? Because if the Holy Spirit is the one that produces the fruit. Then what should be the what should be the conclusion you should think? What do I say every time when I say this? I've said it a million times now. Probably everyone online at least knows that because I say it a million times. If the Holy Spirit's the one producing fruit in us, it should be perfect fruit. And is it perfect fruit? No. And if the Holy Spirit's the one producing it, if I don't have it, then back off. Don't blame me. Blame the Holy Spirit, because he's the one who's supposed to be producing it. But why do I get in trouble if I don't manifest it? Well, then that would seem to mean that I'm the one producing it. See, sometimes we teach everyone that the Holy Spirit will produce fruit in your life, but if you don't manifest enough of it, almost what always happens if you don't manifest enough fruit? People doubt your salvation. But how can you doubt my salvation? The Holy Spirit's the one supposed to produce it. I don't have to do anything. You say, well, 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 you could stop it. So then the Holy Spirit only produces it with my cooperation? Well, why wouldn't the Holy Spirit work on my lack of cooperation? There's a million problems with this. Well, 
Well, yeah, and what does a lot look like compared to a little? What we think, exactly. So, but I, but I do believe that the I do one hundred percent agree that pr- fruit will be produced. I just don't know what that means. And they say the same thing. It remains in mystery. So the word of God is not rightly divided when the preacher describes faith as that which gives beyond acceptance and belief in the gospel and attempts to define a reformation for mode of living produced by said faith. In other words, you start whenever you say, "Hey." Faith is going to produce some kind of reformation in someone's life that you're, going to, you're not rightly dividing the word of truth. I would agree with that. That's right back to what we've said. You can't judge someone's faith by works. But they're trying to deal with the same problem. So I'm going to, I'm going to, this one is good. I think there's a lot here that we could work on. I think it's awesome because it's trying to bring in so many of the elements. But with the what we went with was what? Let's go with our number 10. What was our number 10? The word of God is not rightly divided. When preacher describes faith as involving obedience to the law or as the thing that produces righteousness in us, or produces some kind of reformation in us. No, I think that that's when it's gone too far. Because now faith is getting mixed with what? Works. All right, now, we're almost, well, we are out of time. All right, let's just read number 11 really quick, and then we'll read number 12. Okay, we didn't get to number 12, did we? Okay, so, but we did cover number 11, so I'm just going to review it. All right, the word of God is not rightly divided when there is a disposition to offer the comfort of the gospel only to those who have been made contract by the law, not from fear of the wrath and punishment of God, but from love of God. And remember, I had some issues with this, right? Because this seems to call into question, okay, wait, when can I offer the gospel? When can I not offer the gospel? And wait, someone is, how did they put it? Someone is contrite, contrite, but they uh, and but not from the fear of wrath and punishment from God, but from the love of God. In other words, someone feels contrite, but they don't do so because of the fear of wrath and punishment, but because of the love of God. And I'm not supposed to give that person the gospel. I have to give them the law to make them feel contrite for the right, right reason. And remember, I had major issues with this, right? So how did I reword it? Yeah, I, I said the, the word of God is not rightly divi- divided when we limit who we preach the gospel to. Because, I mean, like, oh, you feel contract over your sin? Please tell me why. Oh, well, because God loves me so much. Well, I'm sorry, you're not contract for the right reason. Okay, I, I have a little bit of a problem with that one, okay? All right, now, number 12. Everybody ready? We'll end with this one. The word of God is not rightly divided when the preacher represents contrition alongside of faith as the cause of the forgiveness of sin. The word of God is not rightly divided when the preacher represents contrition alongside of faith as the cause of the forgiveness of sin. 
Does anyone understand that? All right. I get. I got one yes. In the back. Do you think you understand it? I got a partly. All right. Here in the middle. Okay. No, 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 no. That's a, That's okay. Okay. I'll read it one more time. <laughs> what was he doing? All right. Even if you, you know, even if you don't write it down, at least listen. Okay, here we go. The word of God is not rightly divided when, when there... Okay, hang on. The word of God is not rightly divided when the preacher represents contrition alongside of faith as the cause of the forgiveness of sin. All right. In the back, why do you think... What, what do you, how do you understand this? Okay, all right. It's been, it's been rejected. They have refused to answer in the back. Okay, what, what, how do you understand it? Okay, very good. Okay. All right. Does that make sense? Or do you have a different perspective? Do what? Okay, all right. Okay. So, this seems to be indicating that... that so, make sure we understand. What? Why are we forgiven of our sins? No, no I'm saying, how, how do we understand it, forget the thesis, just typically, how would we say this? Why are we forgiven of our sins? Or how are we forgiven of our sins? Okay, We we, we may say Christ, okay. What else do we typically say? We've spent over an hour now talking about it. Faith, very good, very good. Okay, faith. Remember, this one talks about faith as well? Okay, right. Remember, there's a reason I spent so much time on faith because faith is becoming paramount to these discussions now. Does everybody understand why I try to define faith? Okay. In other words, I I didn't take all of that time this evening just because I had nothing better to do, but but it's really building this. Okay, so if we say I'm, I'm saved or I'm forgiven because of faith in Christ alone... They're saying you're not rightly dividing the word of truth when someone says you're saved by faith because of contrition and faith. They're saying that mixes two things. Law and the gospel. Because contrition comes from what? Convicted by law. The gospel is where the faith comes in. I am not saved because of my contrition. I am saved because of my faith. Now, a lot of people believe if you've never truly, and I've heard it preached this way at altar calls, if you've never been broken over your sin, if you've never felt the weight of your sin, you are not saved. And so you better come to the altar and cry. You better come to the altar and feel guilty. Well, I've heard it preached. Does that make sense? Well, that's what they're claiming. It's not rightly dividing the word truth. And I think there's some, some clear truth to that. Because immediately what, calls into, what, what comes in. Remember, we've already brought this up. How much contrition... Is everyone going to experience the same level of contrition? There's just no way. 
Right. 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 That, that becomes subjective. Anything in the back? Did you want to add to this? Or you're just going to just say, we're okay? We're, we're, we got it right? Do, do we get a... Do we get a... A blessing from the, the Pope that we got it right back there? Okay. All right. So... Oh, there's much more. I, someone uh, sent this because I thought it was good. That this idea of law and gospel, I'll end with this. That this concept of law and gospel is so sweet to the condemned Christian ear. Once you start learning it, you can't unhear it. So then it makes it hard to operate in the other world where that doesn't seem to exist. In other words, when you understand the law and gospel definition, it should become very sweet and beautiful and you can never unhear it and go back to the Christian world which obliterates it. I think, I, I think uh, what some people have felt that the more they understand law and gospel, they feel completely out of place with the rest of Christianity. They feel like, where do I fit in? You clearly don't fit in in, the, in Catholicism, right? Sadly, you don't even fit in in the evangelical Protestant world because they've so obliterated it. They have so obliterated it. We have to get a correct understanding of law and gospel. And we have to be able to distinguish it. But the focus tonight, I just want you to think about tonight as you leave, because this is the, the, the probably the main point of tonight. We spent way too much time on it. Well, I don't know if we spent too much time on it, on it, because I know there was a lot of confusion, and hopefully I didn't confuse everyone. But this is important. You have to determine, and I would challenge everyone listening, that the rest of this week, especially before Sunday, okay, before Sunday gets here, to really nail down how you understand faith. What is it? What does it include? What does it not include? Because if you don't have that down, then you don't... I mean, you're, you're judging your salvation. If you believe you're saved by grace alone through faith alone, you've got to know what that faith involves to know if you had the faith that saves, right? And if you're going to judge other people's salvation, which we all do to some level, we've got to know what it is. Now, I, I'm going to put forth that the, the classical evangelical definition is far superior, more biblical and more correct with a law and gospel distinction than the MacArthur definition. And the classical definition, faith involves three things. What? Knowledge. Knowledge. Everyone understands that, right? You can't have faith in something you don't know. And how do we hear, how do we obtain that knowledge? Through the preaching of God's word, right? How can they believe in whom they have not Heard, and how can they hear without, unless a preacher is sent, right? All Romans, everybody understands that, okay? So, you got to know something, yes? Okay, next. A sent means what? You acknowledge it's true. You're not going to have faith. I mean, hopefully you don't have faith in something that's not true, right? Okay, right? And then third, trust. You have to trust in it. You got to trust in it. And when we say trust in it, what do we mean? I that I trust in this as being true and I'm trusting in this for my salvation. MacArthur came along and said it, it involves what three things? Knowledge and assent. Everyone says those two things. But he added a third. Or he changed the third. 
Instead of going with trust, he went with determination of the will to obey. Yeah, well, and many of the, the dictionaries did some of the same thing. You got to obey. You have to obey. Which literally obliterates that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone. And then get it, faith is the thing that produces the works. Then faith is something more than just believing because it's something happens and all of a sudden faith automatically like, oh, this depraved person, dun 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 depraved person wants to know, I'm going to obey. And I guess it gives you the ability to obey. Which then leads to all kinds of questions, right? Why aren't Christians perfect? But we got I'm gonna I'm gonna put forth the the evangelical. Well, we are one way, right? But that's a whole different thing. There's gospel coming in, right? The gospel is the law says what? Be perfect, and the gospel says he is perfect, and you are perfect in him, right? That's why it's sweet. But the rest of all the Christian friends, you know, will say what? But, 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 but. But, 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 but. You have to do this, 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 or you're not saved. They, they, they get rid of that sweetness really quick, right? And, of course, they walk all around patting themselves on the back that they do it all. That they do it all. Until what? Until they get exposed. As long as they can keep all of that sin, or they can convince themselves that they're clear. They can be, they can be literally, it is so amazing. They can be literally sitting somewhere slandering you, gossiping you, tearing you into shreds, yet pat themselves on the back that they meet the requirements for salvation. They literally can be sitting somewhere slandering you and gossiping you and ripping you into shreds, and they don't go, wait a minute. If salvation is a pro, you would think one of the key things, a determination to obey God. And what does he say? Love your neighbor as yourself. Sitting there slandering and destroying them should make you go, wait a minute, I'm not saved. But no, no, no. They'll just continue to rip you apart and slander you and yet still believe that they meet the requirements for lordship salvation. And then amazing that everyone believes in lordship salvation, believes that they meet the requirements? Isn't that, isn't that funny? But they're always good to tell you who doesn't meet the requirements. Trust me, I've been there. I did it. I thought, I convinced myself that I could meet them. But I was very quick to know others who supposedly didn't. And guess what I focused on? I focused on how much I read and how much I studied and how many sermons I listened to because I knew that that could make up for anything else that I was lacking in, okay, right? You, you'll focus on the part where you're strong, right? And you're like, well, come on. Why don't they read? Why don't they study? Why don't they do this? Why don't they do that? How come they don't show up to church? They skipped. Oh, it's Sunday afternoon and I'm tired. I can't go to church Sunday night. Oh, okay. Well then, but guess what? They won't use that to judge themselves, forsake the assembly, hey, that's okay, I was tired. I'm saved. Wait a minute, you believe in lordship. Shouldn't you be really worried about missing church? (laughs) Right? Because you constantly have to be passing the test. 
But they're worried that the person who believes in law and gospel distinction will say, well, I'm perfect in Christ. I never have to go to church. See, they're worried about that. But wait a minute. You, you don't even show up to church every service and you're worried about others who may not come to church. Worry about yourself. And guess what you'll find out if you're even halfway honest. I mean, we, 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 how many times do I have to take, pull out the MacArthur test to prove to everyone no one passes that test? That's why MacArthur does what in the test? Do this, but we're never going to do it perfectly. Well, then you know what the test becomes? Meaningless. <laughs> it becomes meaningless. Any questions? I know number 10 caused lots of problems. But have we simplified it enough to just make us realize what can we not do if we're going to rightly divide the word of truth? We can't come up with a definition of faith that obliterates the gospel. Does that make sense? All right. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening. Not an easy study. Not an easy one to try to work through together. But I hope that through maybe the difficulty and the confusion, we have grasped a little bit more understanding on this and that when we come back to it as we work through these, we will see the true beauty of law and gospel, embrace it, and hopefully help others see it as well. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...